You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Young people can breathe new life into social causes, and when it comes to climate change policy, some of the fiercest advocates for the environment have been students. But with limited resources of their own, what can young people accomplish in the fight against climate change? Today, we revisit an interview with Dyson Chi, a senior at University of Hawaii at Manoa and the head of the Hawaii Youth Climate Coalition. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about the power of the student perspective. Growing up in Hawaii, I spent so much time in the ocean. I began to notice at a young age, I would say around 10 to 12 years old, that there was some issues happening with the oceans and the beaches that I always went back to. I would go back and I would notice it was very slow and very gradual, but inevitably there would be more dead corals, more algal growth, uh, replacing those corals, less fish. My grandpa and my dad would always tell me stories about how when they were kids, they always caught tons of octopus, tons of fish, easy to find them. And yet now it was like, you know, calming through a desert to try find those things. And I think that was my first experience with climate change. I didn't know that it was called climate change. I didn't know that it had anything to do with this issue of climate change. But for me, that experience was personal because it affected the very lives that I led and the lives that my parents led in the past. And when did you start to have language for climate change that put your personal experience into a bigger context? I think around the time I turned 13, I began to pick up on not just the issue of climate change, but also plastic pollution in particular, which is directly related to climate change because plastics are made from fossil fuels. And once I became aware that climate change, plastic pollution, and these other environmental issues were, were a problem to the place that I call home, that's when I began to pick up on kind of the language and understanding that revolves around climate change discussions. So it started from a very early age, but of course it was always, you know, there's always new things to learn. When I was 13, people said, wow, six feet of sea level rise, that's a little extremist. Now six feet of sea level rise is pretty realistic. And what do you see climate change looking like in your life? I guess not optimistically. I see it as a major changer in my life. I mean, when you look at the sea level rise maps, by the time we hit nine feet of sea level rise, my house will be beachfront property. The sewers around my house will be backing up. And in all likelihood, I'm not going to be able to live where I am. And this is by the year 2100 when I would turn 98. There's so many other issues. I mean, the beaches that I grew up in, that I called home, for example, Magic Island, they would no longer exist. They would cease to exist. There would be tons of other impacts. We would have much stronger hurricanes. There was a documentary done not too long ago that showed that if we lose our ports, if a big hurricane comes in and destroys our ports, destroys our airport infrastructure, we have, what, I think a week of food about to last ourselves, and then we're out. On the more optimistic side, though, I think climate change as a future, some of it is inevitable. We have gone far enough where some amount of sea level rise is going to happen. Um, it is mostly a matter of how slow we can make it happen. And if we can make it slow enough, then we can move our infrastructure. We can adjust it to change. You know, the Hawaii that I'm going to be around, you know, at 2100 is going to look different. That is for sure. If you look at the data and information and studies that we have, that much is inevitable. 
But what I'm hoping is that because we face this tremendous issue, we are going to make changes that make our society better. We are going to live more in sync with the environment rather than separating humans and the environment as two different things. Because at the end of the day, both depend on each other, both interact with each other every single second. Sea level rise seems like it's a particularly potent aspect of climate change because it's one that impacts you directly and that you can measure, and because of your relationship with Hawaii and its oceans. You head up the Hawaii Youth Climate Coalition. What other particular experiences or concerns do people in the coalition have? What feels really pressing to folks in your demographic? The issues resonate quite similarly. All of us living on an island state. I think some of the biggest issues involve, you know, is there going to be a place for me in Hawaii's future? And this question is not limited to just climate change, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of factors that we consider into this. But climate change is one of the major ones, because if the place that we currently live in gets inundated, if the places that we live in become more and more inhospitable because of the issues of climate, because of climate impacts, then in all likelihood, we see no future for ourselves here. We see lots of people talking about the brain drain, right, where people are leaving Hawaii to go to the mainland and elsewhere because there's better opportunities abroad, because the cost of living is cheaper abroad. If you throw on climate impacts onto that, things don't look so good for Hawaii. And our generation, most of the people I know, are all already leaving because they see a lack of opportunities here. If climate change becomes another barrier to them staying in Hawaii and building a future here, that's not a thought that I like to think about. In the work that you do, but just also in your position as a young person, as a student, when you bring up these issues of climate change, particularly as they impact your fellow students, your fellow young people, do you feel heard? Do you feel like stakeholders in the highest level of policy who are making decisions about our state are listening to you? Sometimes yes, more often than not no. I think there is a very high degree of frustration that comes around, especially when we make it very clear that these are particular changes, particular actions that we want to see happening and yet it seems like we need at least 100 pieces of community testimony in order to outweigh the testimony of one lobbyist, of one developer, of one particularly politically powerful person. And that's a little frustrating because we are taught in high school and in college that we live in a democracy. Your voice is just as equal and just as important as anyone else's, yet more often than not, we feel like that doesn't hold true in government. Sometimes we do feel heard, um, especially with particularly key legislators. We have felt that they're really in touch, that they are really helpful allies in combating the climate crisis together. But as a whole, institutionally speaking, I think that's a bit of a rarity. What's the value of having the student perspective in those types of high-level policy discussions? The student perspective brings in the perspective of people who know that they are going to face among the worst impacts of climate change out of any current living generation. 
That doesn't mean that existing generations aren't going to feel the impacts. All of us are going to feel the impact. People that we care about and love are all going to feel the impact. And at the end of the day, climate change is an intergenerational issue. At the end of the day, we're all working together as allies to solve the issues. And so those different perspectives, I think, helps to bolster and strengthen our efforts. The most important solution and the most important way that individuals can make a difference in climate change and in almost any issue is to be civically involved, to take part in our democracy. A lot of times people say that I'm just one person, I make no difference in a world filled with 8 billion of us. But in reality, when you combine the powers of multiple individuals, when multiple people testify on a bill or have a protest to get a bill passed, your voices become amplified by a tremendous magnitude. And when you do that, that is when we see change happen. That is when we build the future that we want to have. I think that because students, current students, have been brought up in a world where climate change is one of the leading issues in discussion, that overall, it will be a bigger priority on their to-do list. I think for that reason, when younger people do get into positions of power, I remain hopeful that climate change will continue to be at the forefront of our decision-making and our considerations when it comes to solving the various other issues that we face right now. Is there a particular initiative that the state has rolled out that you find promising or something that you think that the state could take more action on in a concrete way that would make a difference? Let's see. I'll start off with something that's promising. And I think this is actually, this is actually more so the county, um, but I'll also go on for the state as well. Uh, for the county, it's in the county of Honolulu. I am really hopeful um, now that Bill 40 um, is being implemented. It was a bill that we passed back in 2019 um, that was delayed due to pandemic reasons, and it bans the, the um, bans disposable uh, plasticware. And I think that's been really encouraging to see. Of course, there's some businesses that haven't complied with them yet, and so for anyone who does see those businesses, what we would prefer is that you just go up to them, go to the manager, and say, "Hey, you know, there's this bill in effect." Um, it'd be a good idea if you switched over to non-plastic alternatives or to compatible alternatives um, rather than, you know, calling the government departments to go crack down on them because that's kind of the last resort solution that we would prefer not to have to go to. And so I think having Bill 40 in effect is hopeful because it shows that from 2019 when we had that outpouring of youth and community business politicians um, you know, nonprofit organizations, people from all sectors of life coming together to support this bill. We were able to get it passed despite you know, a lot of skepticism. And now it's finally taking effect. I think on the state level, something that's been really hopeful or that I hope to see anyway, I think the discussions on this have been hopeful thus far, is the implementation of a green fee on uh, tourists that are coming in because at the end of the day there is a sizable amount of carbon emissions 
coming in from people who fly in and out of Hawaii. And I think having that green fee may help to alleviate that. Um, but I think most importantly, it'll generate the revenue that the state needs in order to combat climate change. At the end of the day, it's going to cost money to you know, push our infrastructure back, to make it taller, to protect it against inundation and other climate threats. And you can't do that without money. So I think by generating that money, it'll allow us to become more resilient against the climate crisis. And hopefully it'll put on you know, people who are visiting the awareness to them if they're like, wait, I've got a green fee. What does that mean? And I'll kind of put it on their radar that, oh yeah, this is that way we can mitigate the damage of climate change because we're an island state and we're really vulnerable to this problem. Thank you so much for coming down to the studio to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Savannah. It's a pleasure to be here. That was a rebroadcast of an interview that HPR Savannah Harriman Pope did with Dyson Chi, UH student and executive director of the Hawaii Youth Climate Coalition. They discussed the role of student voices in climate change policy and whether or not young people see a future for themselves in Hawaii. The interview originally aired on September 15th, 2022. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. This week on Science Friday, a mission to learn how we might save the Earth from an impending asteroid someday. If we find the asteroids, we can very realistically be in a position where we're assessing if they're a threat to the Earth and having decades potentially in order to do something about it and that's what you would want that's on science friday from wnyc studios beginning this afternoon at one support for hpr comes from hawaii occupational safety and health the october pacific rim safety and health conference highlights mental health in construction labor.hawaii.gov slash h-i-o-s-h slash 2022 conference This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. If you're just joining us, we're spotlighting some of our favorite youth voices this hour. And this next story comes from one of our own. The Conversation summer intern, Emily Tom, asks how her fellow college students are sleeping. In California, public high school students now don't start until 8.30 in the morning. At Baylor University, students earn extra credit for sleeping eight hours a night during finals week. And at Harvard University, new students go through a sleep education program before arriving on campus. But what initiatives are in place in Hawaii, the most sleep-deprived state in the country? Emily Tom takes a look at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Rudy Ramirez is waiting at the bus stop. He's on his way to the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and he has a busy day ahead of him. First, classes. 
Ramirez is entering his fourth year at UH. He's majoring in food science and human nutrition. He spends 50 hours a week on schoolwork. Then he moves on to his other duties, student body president, volunteer work, neighborhood delegation. He got about six hours of sleep last night and he's tired. There's been times actually that I would do an assignment that maybe three in the morning I'm finished and I have to be up maybe by eight and I don't even feel present. I can't even remember what happens throughout that day. He's not alone. According to the CDC, Hawaii is the most sleep-deprived state in the country. And it has been for the past six years. 40% of adults in Hawaii report getting fewer than seven hours of sleep per night. It's so noticeable when you're so tired and you barely can focus, you can barely do things. Kids like Ramirez at UH Manoa are balancing a lot. Classes, homework, sports, clubs, everything that goes into life as a college student. There's a lot of priorities to do during the semester. You know, some people are working so that can add into the night or them having to do other things that might push back their sleep time, such as assignments that they got to fit into their schedules. But college students have lives outside of school. Lots of them are supporting themselves through their education. Ramirez says he's using federal aid and scholarships to get his degree. College is expensive. Living in Hawaii is also expensive. Between school and work, there's not much time to rest. And when push comes to shove, Ramirez says sleep is usually the first to go. People need to prioritize what's needed to kind of survive. So students are working late hours, then finishing their assignments, then getting up early for class. And when people in your lecture hall are sipping coffee and yawning, professors notice. We talked to Dr. Laura Lyons. She's currently serving as interim vice provost of academic excellence, but she used to be an English professor. Here's Dr. Lyons. I would say when I was uh, teaching in the English department, it wasn't uncommon to have one two students in a given class who might come into class more sleepy or who might even at times nod off. They might have said that they were up really late working on finishing a project or that they were working a job that went to quite late hours in order to pay for college. And so, you know, they were feeling sleep deprived. But sleep is more complicated than just having too much work to do. It can also have to do with factors outside of your control, including your race. Dr. Allison Nichol is a postdoctoral research fellow at Baylor University. She looked at data from 1.9 million college students from 2000 to 2020. So what we found was that um, underrepresented minority students reported significantly less sleep than their non-URM counterparts, and that this was also associated with poorer grades. So. Um, academic outcomes suffered as a result of the poor sleep. And we speculate that the underrepresented minority groups are getting less sleep as a result of experiencing uh, discrimination and microaggressions in their daily lives. In other words, underrepresented minority students, that includes Pacific Islanders and some Southeast Asians, are getting less sleep. And they're getting worse grades because of it. They often have more negative experiences in their day-to-day lives, which can actually cause um, psychosocial distress. 
um, things like rumination. You're thinking about all of the, the sort of mean things people have said or done to you all day. And those things can actually disrupt your sleep. If they're going to class and maybe their professor has some biases and they are picking up on those, the underrepresented minority students might actually carry this with them sort of throughout their day, throughout their lives, throughout their schooling. At UH Manoa, where 80% of the student body is non-white, support for underrepresented minority students is especially important. But are colleges really supposed to take responsibility for student sleep? Right now, at least at UH, sleep is largely a you problem. When Ramirez needs extra support, he makes sure he talks to his professor one-on-one. I have some really good professors that are more understanding, and I email them and say, you know, this is my situation here. I have a lot that I'm doing, uh, and I'm sitting in this now. Or, you know, if they're more lenient, I can ask, you know, I, this is what I have so far. If you can grade this, or if you can give me an extra day or two, I would have a better detailed assignment to turn in. It's a one-time problem with a one-time solution. If you want more time for your assignment, you have to ask for it. And if you want more time to sleep, you need to find it yourself. But Dr. Nickel believes it's not about personal responsibility. I think if we worked more collectively that sleep would kind of come along with it. I don't think it's any particular person's fault that they get poor sleep. Dr. Nichols says if we want to enhance sleep education, we need to start with education itself. And we already have a template as to how this would look. We already learn about healthy eating and exercise in school. A lot of colleges require alcohol education programs before students arrive on campus. Many also hold seminars on safe sex practices, drug use, even mental health. What if sleep was presented the same way? Dr. Nichols says universities should start looking at sleep the same way they look at drugs and alcohol. We know that those things can cause trouble in college students, and we make a point of acknowledging that from the get-go, but we don't ever acknowledge sleep or lack thereof. If we can implement or require, I guess, some sort of sleep course, you know, no different than taking, like, an accounting course or like a home ec course, teaching you the importance of sleep health and sleep hygiene. Now, Baylor might not have that required sleep course just yet, but they do have upper-level courses about sleep in their psychology department. They also run the Sleep Neuroscience and Cognition Laboratory, which is dedicated to studying sleep and health. Sleep just plays a large part in Baylor academics. But different schools have different needs. And UH looks a lot different than Baylor. A comprehensive sleep policy here would be hard, if not harmful. For example, Dr. Nichols suggests pushing back start times. It's something Baylor has already done. Making the school start times later would help all high school, college students in general. We are pretty adamant about not starting classes before 9 a.m. if possible. High school students, college students are not really mentally prepared to start learning until, yeah, nine. But Dr. Lyons says early start times can help with accessibility. When she was a professor, she noticed that early morning classes can be more convenient for a lot of commuter students who want to avoid long evening drives. I don't think that at Manoa we could actually push back the start time to 9 a.m. in the way that 
Baylor does, you know, Baylor is a much more residential campus than Manoa, and it serves a different population. Dr. Lyons explained that starting classes earlier in the day means they have time to teach more classes, which means teaching more students. It's especially helpful for general education requirements. So if you have an English 100 class at, say, 7.30 a.m., then you can have another one at 8.30 and 9.30 and so on. The more classes you hold, the more students you can teach, which provides more flexibility for working students. A university like ours, which has a number of students who have significant commutes and has students who work and who work at various times, has to be flexible in terms of scheduling. The schedule allows them the chance to take classes at a time that's going to work for them. Not only does UH start early, but it also goes later into the evening. They're even considering night classes. And the more time you spend in a night class, the less time you're actually sleeping at night. But the university has many returning students, adults who go back to school to get their degrees. We actually have talked in the Manoa cabinet about the need to, you know, think about are we offering enough classes in the evening, especially to fulfill the needs of returning students who might still be in full-time employment? They obviously need that job in order to support themselves and their family, but they are still committed to receiving a college degree, and, and we need to equally be committed to providing classes at times that will help those students. Basically, there is no one-size-fits-all way to address sleep amongst college students. Schools with more commuter students or more returning students can't do everything a residential school can. Each school will have to figure out what works best for its students. Still, there are other ways to address sleep hygiene without changing class times or workload hours. Dr. Nichols suggests making it part of the curriculum. I've always suggested that if we, as like a culture, <laughs> would start recognizing how important sleep is to our overall health and our social interactions and our behaviors and basically everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, that we would actually implement, you know, sleep education in schools from, you know, early elementary school all the way through college and provide support for good sleep. Dr. Lyons says she could see the university starting other initiatives to encourage better sleep. She told me she doesn't think they'll have a sleep course, at least not anytime soon, but... Education is not obviously just in a classroom. We also have to think about other ways that we educate students, like having workshops or I think about the kinds of messaging we do, like in terms of, you know, posters or departments sending things out or a counseling center sending things out. So maybe we'll see university counselors or health specialists work with students on sleep. Maybe we'll see seminars and workshops on the importance of sleep. Maybe we'll see later start times, not at UH, but in middle schools and high schools. Rudy Ramirez hopes so. For one, there could be more awareness of how much sleep is affecting your health long-term and short-term memory, you know, even your brain. For now, though, we'll have to wait and see. Students are sleep deprived. Ramirez is tired. But still, we can dream.
That was a rebroadcast of a story by the Conversation summer intern, Emily Tom, on sleep among college students. Tom has headed back to school herself, and she promises she's trying for a full eight hours in between her studies. That story originally aired August 22nd, 2022. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, with artworks and home furnishings that reflect the life and colors of the islands. Featuring Annie Sloan chalk paint, shipping available. Magnolia-Hawaii.com Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Joseph Selby, author of Breakthrough the Limits of the Brain. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about neuroscience and the meditation-born spiritual experience. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. This is HPR One, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. about all the hobbies you took up during the pandemic. Did you try your hand at roller skating or maybe bread baking? Maybe get to work on that novel uh, you've been talking about for years? Well, whether or not you're stuck with it, these activities were critical tools in fighting the isolation and stress of the first two COVID years. And some of us took those practices a step further, using them to reach out to others during a difficult time. Nine-year-old Milo Rizal Maharlika was born in Hawaii and now lives in Thailand with his parents, Daisy and Ajax. During the pandemic, his parents challenged him to do one drawing a day. Milo, which is short for Michelangelo, took that challenge and ran with it, making hundreds of portraits of people that inspired him. And he made all of those art pieces available as non-fungible tokens called NFTs. The conversation Savannah Harriman spoke with Milo and his mom, Daisy, about his latest venture into digital art and how art can help us to talk about difficult things. Here's Milo. My full name is Michelangelo Rizal Maharlika, but if you have a problem pronouncing my name, it's Milo or Milo. (laughs) And Milo... Are you named after the famous artist Michelangelo? Is that your namesake? Yeah, and but if you if you can't remember that, you can also remember it like the Ninja Turtle. <laughs> Perfect. And is is your namesake one of the things that got you inspired to start in art? Yeah, I I love art, so I yeah the Michelangelo name helped me be inspired by all the art. Yeah, he's he's loved. Um being creative his entire life. He's always loved to draw and paint and make a mess doing art things. (laughs) I like uh, John michelle Basquiat, Keith Haring, Frida Kahlo, Pablo Picasso, and many more. 
And I noticed <laughs> that all of those artists that you just mentioned are portraits that you've done in the form of NFTs. Yeah. So the the way I do it, it's actually chibi. So chibi, it means like anime characters. I so I used to I actually still do one chibi per day. And then by the 200th day or so, I started doing like I could like look at people and then make them as chibi. Yeah. So his, and then we minted them as NFTs. His dad actually gave him this um, challenge during the pandemic because we had all this extra time, right? And we wanted him to kind of not have so much screen time and whatnot. So we asked, oh, you know, maybe you can do a drawing a day. And he's like, oh, can I do chibi? Because he loves to draw chibi. So he's now on like, I think he's almost at day 300, right? Of drawing yeah, a chibi yeah. character every day. So yeah, like he said, after so many days, he he can just basically look at somebody or look at a, a picture of somebody and, and turn them into a chibi character, which is, that's that was his idea for how he was making his collections for his NFT projects. And the chibi, as you said, they're these little cartoon characters almost, and then yes. you have different backgrounds for your portraits. What do you use to make them? What kind of medium do you use? So I just use pencil at first, then um, it, I think it finishes on Sketchpad Pro. Yeah, so we digitize it. He, he scans it into Sketchpad Pro, and then we add the, um, the extra effects and whatnot on that. But um, it's kind of fun, too, because he when he creates his characters, we look at real photos of the actual artists and like different photos that they've had in the past. And we, you know, he creates them based on like real outfits and whatnot that they wore. So you can kind of look at a real photo of them and then see his chibi and see how it translated using that. So. And Milo, can you give me your definition of an NFT? I think it means like, yeah, it's like t technically digital art and I like doing that because if it's just like physical, like you do physical art, other people can't really see it. But if you do digital art, NFTs, it helps show your art around the world and inspire people to follow your lead when you do art. All the artists that you've chosen to do your chibis of and that you have made into NFTs, Frida Kahlo, Keith Haring, Salvador Dali, none of them had the opportunity to make NFTs. What do you think they would think about this new form of art? If I think they were alive, I just hope they'd be inspired right now by all my art that I've done. And if they were, I'd make so many art pieces by now. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd probably make like Michelangelo, Vincent Van Gogh, um, Will Smith, Eminem, <laughs> Logic, <coughs> Tupac Shakur. In one day, I'll do like five chibi per day if they were alive, man. I, I swear <laughs> to God. Is there is there one particular question you would want to ask? If you could ask one artist one question about their work, what artist would you want it to be and what would your question be? The artists I'd ask would be Michelangelo, and I'd ask him, how did you paint the Sixteen Chapel in one in a couple of days? I even oh, it was years, Milo. It, it was a couple <laughs> of years. It's just beautiful. But how did you get it done? How did you get all of that done? Yeah, how did you get it all done by yourself? <laughs> would you ever want to do something that big, you know, 
Michelangelo did the Sistine Chapel and Keith Haring, another uh, artist who'd done portraits of did big, big mural projects. Would you ever want to work on that scale? I would actually, yeah, I try to like, but when I'm older, it'd be easier for me because I have more experience as a painter and a drawer, so it will be easier. And your mom mentioned that you have made over 300 of these portraits that you've made into NFTs as a project that started during the pandemic. Is this something you want to keep going with? Or are you looking for a new creative inspiration? Yeah, I actually want to try and continue growing in that space because I like doing NFTs and others. And I also like posting my acrylic paintings in on OpenSea because it's not just chibi style all day long, but it's also paintings. Because mm. I did so many paintings when the pandemic started. I started ever since like two years ago. So I've done like, I don't know, like 50, uh, more than a hundred paintings probably, I don't yeah. know. He actually started, we had him started just learning about artists and, and trying to imitate or not really imitate, but you know, like do kind of like dedication pieces to them. And then we started posting them just on Instagram and our friends and family would ask like, oh, can Milo paint something for me? So after maybe a few months, he started doing commissions, like where people were asking, oh, can you do this? And can you do that? So NFTs just basically became this another level for that, you know, like, so turning, turning his art into something that could really be shared with the world. And we still continue to, you know, he has art classes and um, we paint almost maybe three times a week. So he has tons of this work, right? So, and we still experiment with different things like yesterday. What did we do yesterday? You know, what did we use? Oh, yeah. we we um we did a um resistance painting, yeah. but it didn't really work. <laughs> well, we did. It's like using oil pastels with watercolors, so it changes the effect of it. So he, he's still trying to learn different styles, also just to basically have more experience and learn different ways of of um creating art. We're we're actually um making a Salvador dollar Salvador Dali painting, but using black oil pastels. When you think about the art that you do every day, is this something you want to do for the rest of your life? Yes, because I want people to be inspired by me. And then later when I pass away, I want them to remember my art and I want my art to be all around the world and be like like Salvador Dali, uh, Don Michelle Basca, all, all of these artists that are that are that passed away but they're still alive with their art. And I, and I want a continuation through my art and want others to continue my legacy. Wow, wow. Well, this is one of the most productive and positive uses of the <laughs> pandemic that I have come across. And I'm very impressed. How has the pandemic been for you otherwise? It's actually been scared. When I first started, when the pandemic first started, I forgot, I think it was like six or seven years old. I was actually scared because there were like so people, so many people we know were getting COVID and then I didn't want to be the next one to get COVID. And I actually, at some points I started getting sick, but I kept on f fighting and then I'm, I'm ending up here on a radio. <laughs> so, so I, I can't believe at eight years old, a kid artist is at the radio. Does art make you feel better? Does it help you with any negative emotions or fears you might have? 
Yes, because like I keep saying, art can make you can change how people feel. Like it, it can make you feel sad or, you know, it's like speech, right? Like it can either bring people up or tear everything apart. So you have to be careful of the choice of your painting and then share your emotions and put it on a paper. That was a rebroadcast of an interview HBR Savannah Harriman Pote did with nine-year-old Milo Rizal Maharlika and his mom, Daisy. They were talking about the role of art in helping you to understand the world. The interview originally aired on March 7th, 2022. You can find Milo's work available as NFTs online on the OpenSea platform. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Some of the most insightful conversations we've had on the show have been with young people. So today we're revisiting those stories. You've heard from Keiki, who use art to find their place in the world, as well as from college students who are working to bring change to their communities. And now we've got an interview with the 2021 National History Day competition winner, uh, Keilani Tinkham, who looks at Oban dance through a personal lens. Kilani was in the sixth grade when she won the competition, the first student from Hawaii to take top prize. Kilani dug deep in her own family history and the traditions of Obon season for her project entitled The Rhythm of Resilience Communication Through the Bond Dance. Take a listen to part of her presentation. Long ago when the Japanese creation myth, the storm god destroyed the land! His destruction frightened Amaterasu, the sun goddess, so much that she fled to a cave and swore to never come out. The world descended into darkness, crops failed, humans starved and perished. But all hope seemed lost, and old goddess stopped and sang on a sake barrel. Ayo, yo, yo, yisato! Her pounding feet made a sound so lively that the other gods couldn't help but dance and sing along. Amaterasu was so surprised by their celebration, she emerged from the cave to share her light. This is the history of taiko drumming, the essential rhythm of the bond dance. The theme for the 2021 competition was communications in history. We had the chance to sit down with Keilani in the studio to talk about the inspiration behind her project. I wanted to do something that focused on my cultural heritage, because that was the whole reason why I wanted to do History Day. So I thought of the Bon Dance, which is the Japanese summer festival tradition, and I wanted to, and I was so excited to do it because I've actually never been to one, and I was so happy to learn about my ancestral heritage. I just went to one recently, and it was just beautiful. It was just there off the Pali Highway, and uh, I I just found it to be such an eye opener. You know, even though I'd always seen pictures of it, I'd never really been down there uh, to experience it. So, so how did you, you know, how did this become a, a, a roadmap for you? Well, 
my papa, his family, they lived in Japan, and they were really good at the bon dance. So every year they had a competition, and they always won it. And my papa, he knows some of the bon dances. So in this um, performance, he taught me some of the bon dances, and I performed them in the bon dance. So I was able to connect my family in it, and I'm so thankful for them. <laughs> and so, gosh, I mean, you, you learned about the, the different, um, you know, the songs and music. Uh, you know, what was that like? Well, I thought it was so cool because everyone knows about the hula and all the other traditional cultural dances. And I wanted to showcase my cultural heritage. And it was so cool because every motion in the bon dance means something. So I was able to understand it for the very first time. And there are bon dances from different parts of Japan and here in Hawaii, too. Yeah, um, in Japan, every region has their own bon dance, and they do that dance over and over. But since people immigrated to Hawaii and they came from all over Japan, Hawaii got this blended of cultures so they could do all the bon dances. And so uh, what did you learn about your family through this experience? Well, I learned that my family was very resilient because in my project I talked about the immigration and internment camps. And I realized my family was actually in those and they had to suffer those. I actually had an ancestor named Yukiko Miyake and she was in the internment camps. And uh, her family had a business and they lost all of it. They lost their business and their money and their possessions and they even lost their trust of the country that they had. And But after that, her daughter had died from cancer, and then her husband died soon after that. And she had declining eyesight, so she grew blind. And But I really felt inspired, and I learned about my ancestor that she, um, she still had a very positive outlook on life, and she was still happy and smiling and positive. In fact, she even said, and we found this interview of her saying this, and she said that life is still beautiful. And if you're positive, life can be beautiful. And so I guess when you think about that and, you know, maybe the difficult times that they had in an internment camp, you know, I'm sure you've read those stories about how rough it was. Yeah, it was really rough in the internment camps. And but the good thing about it was actually that in the internment camps, they could celebrate their cultures because in the outside of the internment camps, the Japanese culture and the Japanese Americans were forced to hide their culture and become Americans they had to do that, otherwise they would be viewed as un-American and kind of declared as treason. But in the internment camps, they were able to celebrate their culture. And in fact, the camp authorities actually continued it and they encouraged that they do that. And so you learned these dances, and some of those dances were from a certain certain prefecture in Japan, right? Yeah. The person I was performing and showing in my presentation, Kei Fukumoto, I actually got to interview her, and she taught me some of the taiko drum movements of Fukushima Ondo, which was the bon dance I talked about. Share some of the, the information that you gleaned from that. Well, I learned that you have to hit the drum in a certain way, otherwise it breaks it entirely. And I thought that was kind of crazy because I was so scared of hitting it wrong to break it. And uh, I learned that I learned a lot about the bone dance. And, and I actually found out that she was the first taiko drummer ever, first female taiko drummer ever in the history. So it was really inspiring to learn from her. Wow. So th- that's... That's a lot to unpack. I mean, when you think of, you know, you just started uh, on this journey uh, and you used the bond dance to kind of kind of channel you through 
the history. Yeah, my project began as just the bone dance, but as I researched and I looked further in, I realized that it was not just about the bone dance, but it was about the trials that, that they faced and how they could overcome it and how the bone dance actually inspired them and communicated resilience to them and helped them go on. After doing this project, I don't know, do you look at bond dances differently now? I totally do. Um, so when I look at bond dances now, I see the not just the outer layer of the community aspect of everyone being together, but I can see the inner aspect of how it connects people and what this bond dances go through, the history of it, and I could really dig deeper, and I can, whenever I see it, I can see the history, and I can see the love of people doing it. And so this competition uh, that you took top honors for, I mean, uh, what was that like, you know, when you saw th what you were up against, you know, because there are lots of uh, really clever projects out there. As I looked at all the projects, I was really, uh, I was, I looked at them and they were really good. So I had no idea how my project would fare because the history day, sometimes it's just the luck of the draw because there's different judges and different judges prefer different things. But I was so lucky. <laughs> I, when I when they announced my name, I was just shocked. <laughs> I wasn't sure that I was going to do it, but I was like, okay, I did it. Yay. <laughs> I saw it and like, oh no, this can't be right. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, a that's I mean, wow, what what a what a big charge. And so, gosh, I don't know. Um, what are your aspirations? What what are your, you know, what do you want to do with history? Any idea what you want to be when you get older? Um, well, I'm still. I have no idea what I'm going to do when I'm older because I have a lot of interests. But for now, I'm going to stick with still doing History Day and still focusing on my cultural and sharing my Japanese heritage. Okay. Um, anything else you want to add just about this whole experience, what it was like? Because I understand your mother was involved in some history projects. Yeah, I want to give a big shout out to everyone who helped me. My teacher, Colleen Spring, and my other teacher, David Yishii. Um, one, one really loving person named Kei Fukumoto. Um, my, another teacher named um, Dory Longi. And... I want to give another big shout out to um, one person I interviewed named Ai Iwane. She was really helpful and actually connected me to Kei Fukumoto. And I'm just so thankful for my family because without them, I don't think I could have done anything, honestly. Well, I'm sure they're very proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming down here and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. That was a rebroadcast of an interview we did with Keilani Tinkum on July 22nd, 2021. Tinkham won first place in a history competition as a sixth grader at Laie Elementary last year. And that's it for our Hanaho show, spotlighting the power of Hawaii's young minds and voices. Is there something from today's show that inspired you? Call our talkback line. Leave your comments. That's 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, Savannah Harriman-Pope, and Stephanie Hahn. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.